Hi there, and welcome back to Music Therapy and Beyond. This week, I am so excited to bring to you a really dynamic and inspirational conversation with the Creative Dementia Collective. They are self-described as three millennial women who are passionate about destigmatizing and personalizing dementia care. Together, they have a collective 30-plus years of experience in the senior care industry, where they all noticed the gaps in supporting people living with dementia and their loved ones. The Creative Dementia Collective was born to fill those gaps and begin to shift the culture of dementia care. The collective is comprised of Kaylee Allen, a board-certified music therapist, Erin Statiker, a certified positive approach to care or PAC independent trainer, and J.L. Weinberg, a licensed mental health practitioner and registered art therapist. These gals are going to bring us a power-packed conversation that I hope is going to inspire you in the work that you do um, with those living with dementia and their care partners, as well as inspire you in your own journey of caring for your loved ones. Their work and approach really targets deconstructing our beliefs and stigmas surrounding conversations of dementia, dying, and grief, and gives us a way to move forward to support those that we love and work with. Let's get to the conversation so that you can hear it straight from them. Welcome to Music Therapy and Beyond, everybody. I'm so excited to have the Creative Dementia Collective on the podcast. And as a reminder to everybody listening, you can watch this episode on our YouTube channel. So I encourage you to check out all of our beautiful faces. (laughs) So thank you guys so much. I um, want you all to introduce yourselves to everybody. So tell us um, who you are, what you do, and uh, maybe where you're from too. Who wants to start? I'll start. Uh, my name is Kaylee Allen. I am the board certified music therapist of the group. Um, I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I bring all of the music therapy stuff uh, to our collective. And I also am the owner of the sweetest, sweetest pit bull named Rosemary. Um, and she is a pet therapy certified dog. Yay. We love Yay. that. <laughs> She's our fourth furry member. Yeah. Um, doesn't play too well on podcasts, though. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. My name's Erin Statiker. I am a dementia educator. I'm a certified independent trainer with a Positive Approach to Care, which is Tipa Snow's organization. And I bring the dementia education piece. And on the side, I also run a memory care. Um, so when we're not working with our clients who are doing this journey at home, I serve a whole bunch of people who are doing it in a care setting. Very cool. And I am JL Weinberg. I am a licensed mental health counselor and art therapist, registered art therapist. And I am originally from Los Angeles, um, moved to New York City when I was 18 and lived there for uh, nearly eight years and then have been in Seattle ever since then. And I bring the element of art therapy and also a big focus on legacy work to the Creative Dementia Collective. Very cool. So we've been talking about the Creative Dementia Collective. Um, what is that collective all about and when did it started? How, when, and what? Um, so we, we each of us actually started in this industry working um, at a community care setting with one of the larger um, senior living and memory care 
communities, um, each at our own different locations and each kind of like keeping an eye on each other. Like, ooh, did you hear what Erin's doing over at, you know, over in her neighborhood? That's really cool. And oh, JL, you need to meet JL. She's really cool. So we were like all kind of like new of each other. Um, but there are limits within that uh, type of setting. Um, and of course, in any type of corporate structure, um, the creativity that you have on the ground and the resources that you have, um, how much say you have in um, exactly how you spend your day and, and what your programs look like um, can be a little bit limiting for creative people like ourselves. Um, so when we got together, we were like, you know what? We have more that we want to do. We have more that uh, that we feel like we can do um, independently. So we started a business in 2020 um, and pivoted and pivoted and pivoted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was it. We started it in that. I think our first like meeting where we were like, let's start a business was late 2019. And then we started it, I think, like April 2020, when everybody was like, couple more weeks like just it you know a few oh, more weeks those were the days <laughs> so um we were like yeah let's just get all our get all our stuff together and then we'll be ready to hit the ground running when everything opens back up um so of course we know how that worked out so um like Aaron said, we tend to uh, work mostly with people who are caring for loved ones living with dementia at home. Um, that was a particularly large need um, right there in 2020 and continues to be. Uh, we also do work with some professional caregivers in the community setting as well. Um, but our our big um, kind of mission is to work with the people living with dementia, as we often do as um, therapists in hands-on ways, music therapy and art therapy, and um, and in Aaron and doing activities and running memory care setting. But also uh, that missing piece too often is not supporting those care partners who are actually like in the trenches doing the work, giving them the background and the tools and the know-how to really do the day-to-day, -day, but also um, shift their perspective a little bit on it as well and kind of take a step back when it gets overwhelming in the moment. Absolutely. And I, I want to get to asking you all about your philosophy behind what you do, because I'm starting to hear what the heart is behind it, peek out a little bit. Um, but I think leading up to that, I would love to hear from each of you, what drew you or made you passionate about um, working with those living with dementia and also their care partners? What um, what makes you want to do that each day? Yeah, have, I'll, I'll, or, I'll, 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 I'll briefly answer and, and then um, Jay will have her own version of it. So I started in this industry about... 10, 11 years ago. And it was totally by happenstance. There's a lot of us who, you know, we don't set out at early college days saying, oh, I want to, you know, when I grow up, I want to work in senior living and elder care. Um, that was not my plan, believe it or not, but I kind of ended up in this industry, um, you know, by a series of fortunate events. And um, I started out doing activities and programming and then really saw how special that could be in a memory care setting. And like so many other people, I was really well-intentioned. I had the heart for it. I had the spirit for it, but I did not have the know-how. So I saw myself quickly approaching that burnout. Like, I really want to be here. I want to be doing good, meaningful work, you know, that, you know, makes me feel connected to my grandparents, all like all of that. But I didn't have, um, the skill training and the company that I was with didn't provide us with that kind of skills training. Um, so I sought it out on my own and I ended up, you know, adding certifications and know-how. And, you know, once I started to understand the population of people that I was serving, um, it was like light bulbs. Right. And I was so much better at my job. You know, I was able to connect with them in a really meaningful and real way. Um, and then that, that is what has me want to do the work I do now. I want to be that person that sets off a light bulb for somebody else, right? Um, because it it can be really rewarding and um, it's just, it, it's some of the most tender, intimate, precious work that can be done. 
but you have to have um, a basic foundation of knowledge to be able to do it without burning out. Yeah. 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 What about you? Um, I came into this work, like I found myself inside of it before I realized what I was doing almost in a way. Um, when I was in graduate school, uh, back in New York, our program, we have a full year internship with each year of the master's program. And my first year internship was at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan um, in their geriatric psychiatric inpatient unit. And I loved working with older adults. I've always been like, even as a young kid, loved hanging out with the adults. I think there's like a meme floating around now that's like people being like, oh, you're an old soul. Like, and it's like, thanks. It's the trauma, you know? (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But I think that like from a very young age, I was just thinking about the world and life in a like a complex way that I didn't even know what was going on, which is probably why I ended up with so much anxiety uh, throughout most of my life. But after working um, at Mount Sinai, I realized, oh, I really love this population. And then when I moved to Seattle, I was looking for a job and there were openings in the senior living industry. And I kind of just showed up trying to get my foot in the door. And when I described my background and what I do, um, the people that were hiring were like, oh, art therapy, that's so amazing. We don't have an art therapist. Um, Can you come and do that? I was like, yes. So I just kind of walked straight into it. And it's only only like in review and looking at my life story that makes sense why and how I kind of ended up doing this work. And for most of my life, I had a lot of anxiety around death and dying and um, kind of obsessive, intrusive thoughts about like losing my mind and going crazy and all of those things. And it's really like deep true meaning of irony that I ended up working with people at end of life who are quote unquote, like losing their minds in the, in the eyes of everybody else. And so I, I believe that like a part of me kind of needed to work that all out. And that's how I found my way to this field. And I mean, it has been very healing for me. Um, but I just, I'm so passionate about helping the rest of us take looks at the parts of this work that nobody wants to talk about. And I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit more when we talk about our philosophy, but that's what really keeps bringing me back to this work day after day is like having these conversations again and again with people that are so scared to look and talk about this idea or this realm of the work that we do. I think, and I'm, I am so excited for you guys to speak more to this too, but I think one thing that is so interesting about this, um, kind of niche area that you all are really honing in on is there's a lot of fear around those conversations and diagnosis and, um, and it it is a scary thing and it can be, especially at first. And, and if you are living with someone who's going through that there, it can be really difficult, but I love, um, I love the personal connection that you both have made so far in your journeys. Kaylee, what about you? Um, yeah, so I initially uh, was going to work with kids. I love kids. I love the creativity and, and getting to be silly. And um, But I found that um, I was really burnt out at the end of the day working with kids. Turns out I love to hang out with kids um, and not work with kids. <laughs> um, and actually, I, I discovered through my internship, um, I was working with a, somebody in private practice who did um, myriad things. But one of the big places we went was uh, memory care. And I found I really enjoyed that work. Um, and I was like, well, let's let's try that out. And a lot of the stuff I really enjoyed about working with kids, getting to be silly, uh, creativity, um, loss of inhibitions, <laughs> all that sort of stuff is still present in dementia care, but I'm not chasing them around the room, which is great. Usually, (laughs) usually (laughs) there's an exception sometimes. Um, so that's, that's how like logistically I got there. Um, but my initial, uh, hesitancy to, to go there was, um, it felt a little too close to home. My dad is living with dementia from a traumatic brain injury and I thought, yeah, I, I won't be able to like compartmentalize and it'll just, it'll be too much. Um, 
but it has ended up being really, really lovely. Um, and I have now in this season of my life actually become his um, care partner. I should make a note. We say care partner instead of caregiver in our group. Um, we don't want to do care to people. <laughs> we want to partner with them in their care. Um, and that can kind of go both ways that allows some autonomy that allows um some freedom and um a little bit more um recognizing that person as a as a fully formed human rather than the sum of their um diagnoses or behaviors um yeah so that's how that's how i ended up and then plus it's fantastic music so as a music therapist i get to do the great american songbook and big band jazz and now in this season of my career i'm leaning more into like folk music revival and early rock and roll so it's um you can't complain that's great music so no, yeah that's ugh, that's maybe one of the best yeah. things about what we get to do is just yeah great music <laughs> all the time so speaking of philosophy um could you guys kind of tell me about the philosophy of the collective and then how each of your individual philosophies fit into that? It's kind of this cool collage of work that you all are doing. Yeah. And before I'm going to let JL take that question, but before we do that, I just want to um, uh, define a couple of terms that you've probably already heard us say, and you'll definitely hear us say more. So uh, Kaylee already um, defined care partner. You'll hear us use that a lot. Um, we invite you all to try that on in your speaking versus, you know, caregiver or caretaker or something like that. Um, the other one is dementia. So we are referring to a big, big, big umbrella term um, that is composed of like 125 different types, forms, causes, essentially of brain change. Um, so that does include Alzheimer's disease. It does include vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body, things like that. Um, but it really is referred to as that umbrella term. Um, and just four things that are true about all dementias, you know, because they're all very, very different. They all present in different ways. They um, change somebody's brain chemically and structurally in different ways. But four things are true about all of them. Uh, two parts of the brain are dying, at least. Um, it is chronic, so it's not curable or fixable at this point. Um, it's progressive. It does keep changing and it will get worse. And ultimately it is terminal. Uh, so those are the four things that all dementias have in common. So when we're ref using that term loosely, um, again, it's an umbrella term. Um, and then you'll hear us say it's a person living with dementia. Um, you'll often hear, you know, somebody suffering with dementia or a dementia patient or an Alzheimer's patient. Um, first of all, it's not our place to say whether somebody's suffering with it or not. Uh, which is true for first, all diagnoses, which is true for yeah. all diagnoses, for anything. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. They're a person first and they are living with a disease. Um, so how they're living with it is, is not our business to allocate. Um, so just wanted to define those right up at the top of the conversation and then Thank let you. JL um, take that answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good to have right in the front of our brains. As yeah. We continue. yeah you Thank bet. you. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that, Erin, because it tees up um, even more information about why we do things the way that we do things, right? And so one of our main goals as the Creative Dementia Collective is to destigmatize the conversation around dementia, aging, and death, right? So we can't move forward. We can't find our way through. We can't help people um, in their quality of life if we can't look at what's going on, if we can't talk about what's going on. And dementia is this kind of like special nugget of all of the deepest collective fears of our current Western society and culture. It hits like a multi-punch of our fear buttons, right? It is this thing of aging, right? Our, ugh, we 
as a collective hate aging, youth forever, fountain of youth, uh, aging is irrelevant, right? It ties so deeply into capitalism, right? Of like, if our bodies aren't able to produce goods, we're worthless, right? So that tethers really deeply into this thing of I'm aging and growing older, don't want to take a look at that. It also touches on this thing of um, Western society prioritizes intellectual understanding and like brain knowledge above all else. We're not super um, on board um, as a whole with like deep wisdom, soul knowledge, intuition, that's always secondary or like a helpful extra, right? And so when you're losing your ability to compete intellectually, which is the the pinnacle, I say that quote unquote, I do not obviously do not believe that, but our culture prioritizes it that way. So that's also very scary. And then yeah. this element of um, understanding time and the the experience of disconnection i mean as human beings the scariest thing we can fathom is feeling disconnected it's you know we're babies and we have our first abandonment wound the moment you know we cry out for something and our our you know whoever's um, caring for us does not show up it's devastating right yeah. and so that stays so deep in the psyche um i think for most people it's just they can't they don't want to look at this idea of I could be someone that society doesn't find valuable, that is not able to um, contribute intellectually or like cognitively in that same way that I used to. And people aren't going to want to touch me. They aren't going to want to be in relationship with me. They're going to be afraid of me and my experience. And so all those things put together make dementia this kind of like shush thing the way that cancer talking about cancer used to be so we really want to destigmatize that conversation so we can actually get people involved and understand like what's actually going on and why are we so afraid of all of these things and how does our fear negatively impact our ability to to care for people to to show up and do the work that we do or even acknowledge that there is a conversation yeah. to be had exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and that's like Part of the part of our philosophy, too, is one of the bigger things that we do is help care partners um, kind of once we're destigmatizing this conversation to like better connect and better care for their loved ones and and kind of go with that journey that is ever changing. Um, and we love alliteration. So our pillars are head, hands, heart, humanity. Um, and that kind of that really describes our process. We start with the head. We start with, uh, I need to wrap my brain around what is going on. Why does she do that? What, yeah. like, what is that about? Um, and once we have a better understanding of that, um, we can then use our big brains to make a different choice and how we're approaching things or how we're looking at things. Um, we go from there to get hands-on and like physically okay practically what are we doing because when people come to us um we love to be existential but they're usually in overwhelm and in crisis and just I need to get through the day and this is not working anymore so yeah. we focus uh, early on on those hands-on skills what can we do differently how can we adapt our routines um let's let's get our hands in the game and then once they kind of like feel, oh, okay, this is working. I'm understanding a different approach. It opens our hearts to that connection. Um, that's where the the music and art, the creative piece and the legacy work really um, starts to come in. You can't really get there when you're in crisis. And we always, always wrap around um, at the end of our work uh, with our clients with humanity. And I like this in, in two different meanings, um, humanity as community, as who are we connected uh, in, in a broad sense as human beings in this experience of life, but also recognizing, again, like we said before, that humanity of the person living with dementia. Um, there can be this language of like, that's not my mom or that's not her Heard anymore mm -hmm. and and or they're a shell of themselves and and while there is some realness in that grief and that loss of of them changing key parts of of who you recognize and who you remember for you, their identity as mom 
not right. their whole self. They're still in there. They're still very much human. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, stripped of some of the societal expectations that we tend to put on through our journeys, uh, those layers tend to come off. And at the very core of it, um, there is a lot of humanity in there. Hmm. And that, that goes exactly with what Jo was saying too, about like when you have the education piece, um, which Aaron, I think it's cool that you started with how that was so, um, important for your journey, getting into this work, right? Like having that piece, then you can kind of deconstruct what we have been, um, so steeped in societally and culturally around this whole conversation. And it is a big one. There's a lot of layers, like you said, and taking those off. Um, I think what is left is something that can be so beautiful, which is something that gets so overlooked when we're talking about this. I think there's so many negative adjectives and attitudes that surround the dementia conversation. I'm putting that in air quotes. Um, but everything that you guys are saying is is so empowering and beautiful and the connection that can come when you shift your the way that you're viewing it and you kind of shift and put aside maybe some of the things um, that after you've worked through them, that there's like fertile ground for so much growth, um, for care partners and society and those living with dementia, you know, they, they have to work through all of that too. And so, um, there's just so much dimension to this, um, but so much room for a really beautiful shift in perspective. So I love that. That's, that's what you guys are bringing to the table. I'm glad that's what you saw in what we just shared. <laughs> yeah, we, yes. we agree. And I think too, you know, two of you mentioned burnout and, and getting into this work. And I think that's also a very real thing for um, not only for the care partners that you're working with, but also as like service providers in the elder care industry. That's a really real thing. You see it all the time. Um I've talked to so many and been in enough facilities um, and talked to people that work in them that, you know, it, it's a real thing. And with all the staff shortages and just limited resources, like you mentioned, the frustration is real. And it sometimes maybe feels like you're just running up against wall after wall when you're trying to do better work. But I'm curious, um, you know, for those of, of us that are working in assisted living or memory care in those types of places, do you have advice on how to um, maybe be some of the change that needs to happen in these in encounters or when we're having conversations with people in these facilities? Um, what is your encouragement or advice to, to people that are wanting to, to really bring a voice of, of light and kind of be that light and, and, and bring this conversation forward? Uh, yeah, I'll take that one. I think part of that burnout piece comes so much from the isolation, doing really, really good heart-centered, like emotionally laborious work behind closed doors, behind, you know, which are often like locked or, you know, secured or keypad protected, like literally protected from the outside world and not having any visibility. So I think if you're somebody in in that environment, if, if that kind of work resonates with you and you feel like this could potentially be a career path for you, like find every way possible to connect with, you know, the greater dementia community, you know, um, have a really good support system, have people, you know, who are doing similar work to you that you're always, you staying connected with making sure that the work you do, um, you know, whether it's tangible or emotional is visible and it's seen and it's witnessed um, because if you're trying to, to do this by yourself, it, that, that, that's, it's just not sustainable. Um, so yeah, connect, you know, with support groups, connect with other professionals, you know, find, find, um, you know, social media accounts that can really like mirror back to you the experience, your lived experience every day. Like, I don't know what it is, but, um, expand outside of your own community. I think it makes a world of difference. Yeah, absolutely. What about self-care? Because I think that's something that also comes into play here. And nah. um, 
<laughs> yeah, no, what is, what is that? I mean, um, but really, I mean, we have a whole segment on self-care and the work that we do with people. Yeah. So really. Okay. So yeah. how does that work or how does that maybe look for those that you work with, but also for yourselves? Like, what does that look like for you to stay, um, filled up in the work that you're doing when you're giving so much? Yeah. Um, we, we emphasize self-care. Um, I, I think it can become, especially like in our culture today, kind of like a buzzword that doesn't really mean anything and is used to sell bath salts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to make a joke about baths, but I didn't want to say it in case, because I love taking baths. But <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I love a bath. Um, <laughs> but it just, it becomes like um, a commodity and a product uh, by this thing. And, and this will be your self-care. Um, and, and self-care is, is really much more than that. Um, we've actually been the three of us recently having conversations about like numbing as self-care dissociation as self-care. Like sometimes that's what you need. <laughs> like you, like obviously everything in its place and, and everything in moderation, you don't want to be completely zoned out all the time, but that can be completely appropriate. And, um, and, and absolutely an evolutionary, uh, skill that serves us. Um, it is a natural response. I mean, that is like your body taking care of you when those things are happening with the resources that it has. So recognizing that there is a time and a place for that, I think is actually really powerful. (laughs) It's empowering because we, we get the messaging like self-care is only, yoga and bubble baths and massages. Um, but self-care is not X, Y, Z. And it can look differently on different days. Um, if I have a ton of energy and I want to do my skincare routine, like that's great. If I'm burnt out makeup wipes, like it's going to look different on different days. We can't predict our energy, um, and our changes in that, uh, particularly when we're working uh, in this field where dementia is a moving target. And I actually just listened to somebody speak on um, sustainability versus consistency. When you're making a practice for yourself, the goal isn't to be consistent with it because our lives are not consistent. And our, the factors that uh, that come into every day are not consistent. I sure wish they were. Sustainable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> be amazing. But yeah, we have a whole um, section about this in the workbook that um, I, I I am an at-home care partner and I like to um, have my certain routines, but there are times where it's like, I, that's not going to do it for me today, but I also don't have the energy to think of something. So to like take this workbook off the shelf and like flip to the self-care session section and be like, what do I want to do today? Do I want you know, this prompt, do I want to draw on this mandala? Do you know, it's, um, it's really nice to like take the brain work out of it and take that extra labor step out of it and just kind of make it automatic. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk a lot too, with our clients about, um, like deconstructing why self-care even matters, right? Like to its core. And as care partners, um, there are a lot of intersecting factors that make caring for oneself or prioritizing oneself um, not accessible or really uh, feel very elusive, right? A lot of people who uh, are like provide care in their life or partner in care are women or femmes, right? They're at home care partners. A lot of them are like daughters or wives, right? They're people of all genders that provide care, but this maternal caring energy, even as archetype in our culture is one of selflessness. Um, and this expectation of giving of the self for others and how problematic that can be when, you need it to be sustainable. And so there's this other little kind of asterisk in self-care of it's not just caring for oneself enough to get back to the grind of doing the labor. It is how do I keep myself alive and enlivened as a human being 
on this whole journey, right? And I think that is where like what Kaylee was saying about the kind of commodification of it is like buy this thing, quick fix, get back, you know, to the work like you were doing and work harder, right? Mm. Yeah. So that kind of thing of um, how do we start to to shine light on the ways that we're holding on to stories of how we ought to be um, uh, as care partners that are maybe you know, patriarchal or misogynistic or whatever, and then addressing those as well. That's also self-care, right? Yeah, absolutely. Getting at it at a deeper level instead of just the surface of a face mask to cure all of your, you know, fill in the blank, right? <laughs> yeah. Again, like, no shade on know... face masks. I love those too. I do them. I <laughs> yes. probably need to do more, but that's, you know, <laughs> that's like not face masks. Yeah. Face masks are super important and can be really wonderful. And also like, they're not going to dismantle the establishment on their own. You know, they're just, <laughs> they're a sheet of paper, you know, um, right. but like what Kaylee was talking about earlier of, you know, the head, hands, heart and humanity, this self-care topic is such a great example of the different facets of that, of when someone comes to us in crisis or in a state of overwhelm, I'm not going to come at them being like, we need to like dismantle the establishment through your thought process. No, of course not. We're going to get them resources that make it feel like they can breathe and move through a day, right? And then we kind of layer on it and deepen the conversation to make it feel like, oh, this is why this is actually so important and why I need to keep prioritizing this. Well, and rather than yeah. just, you know, piling on top of the overwhelm, which by the way, I love um, everything that you were describing, the head, hands, heart, humanity piece really parallels like a trauma-informed care approach also, which I love. Um, so I wanted to put that out there. Um, it's almost like you guys are, I don't know. It's like, it was on purpose or something, but, um, what you're saying is not that you're just adding to the overwhelm, which I love. You are meeting people exactly where they are coming alongside of them, partnering with them and, um, then helping, giving them resources, but also empowering them to, to pull from their own resources, which I love. It's yeah. a very, um, like resource, uh, oriented kind of approach to what you're doing rather than here, we're going to fix this and we're going to fix this. And here's your step-by-step, -step, you know, to get through, um, this diagnosis thing. You know what I mean? It's so much deeper yeah. than that. And it's like, you're, you're helping them figure out what they need to do, um, to not just like survive, um, but to really live. Right. Yeah. Yes. And on yes. a, and in any given day, you could, you know, need 10 different tools, you know, pull from those different resources from face masks to mail or meal delivery to community support group, to dismantling the patriarchy, like, you know, and pull <laughs> from each one of those tools at any given time. So eat the self-care gamut is, Run, runs wide, <laughs> runs yeah, deep and yeah. wide. Yeah, we were talking so. about so much of the hangup of like the burnout of like, God, I'm a terrible care partner or, oh my God, like I, I, I just was the worst music therapist today or whatever it may be is um, using the wrong tool, right? Like we have, the more tools you have, the more you have to pull from. But if you're presented with an issue or a problem in that moment and you don't necessarily have the tool for it you don't have the background for it it's a new thing for you like you're gonna feel like a failure um but it's it, it is a, exactly what you're saying it's about access to um those support systems it's about access to um different types of tools and different types of approaches that um are gonna serve you in different ways at different times yeah Absolutely. Now, one thing I wanted to ask about, speaking of different things at different times and pulling from your support systems, um, I'm really curious if you guys could speak a little bit to what co-treating looks like in your collective and working together with all of your modalities and approaches um, to be this really cool collective of resources. Um, could you guys speak to that a little bit too? Yeah, JL, do you want to start us and I'll I'll tag team if there's for sure. Yeah. So kind of our philosophy is really rooted in community, 
right? And um, like we were talking about these different tools, all three of us bring different things to the table and we all share the same philosophy and the same kind of heart-centeredness anchor of what we do in this work. And we all have different areas of of specialty and and genius in the work that we do. And so um, for an example, right, we we know through the research that um, expansive treatment teams uh, lead to better outcomes, right? If Absolutely. someone, it, no matter what the, the thing being addressed is, the more people that are invested in one's care, the better the outcome, period, right? And so that's kind of like how we show up and approach this is if we are approaching it from what can I learn? How do I express? How do I preserve? All of these things from the different angles, people feel very seen and held in that experience, um, which to to be in a space of feeling extreme overwhelm and isolation, um, to feeling very seen, not just by one person, but multiple people at the same time um, with deep compassion. I think that's really like relieving for a lot of people. And then to kind of specifically speak about when Kaylee and I combine forces in art therapy and music therapy at the same time, it's also a, a cognitive buffet, right? Um, an, an experiential somatic buffet as well of expressing in the visual realm, expressing in the sonic realm, um, the the haptic realm, right? Like touch and how do we how do we feel and move around our environment? Um, that's something that can really level up a. a expressive therapies experience, right? Of having the right playlist, uh, the right tone uh, of the environment while people are creating art on a particular topic can really enhance the experience, especially for dementia, because we need a lot of cues to kind of stay grounded in what we're doing. So when we when we come together and, and combine that into that kind of expressive arts therapies um, at the same time, I think especially for people living with dementia, like Aaron said in the beginning, right, dementia means that two or more parts of your brain are dying simultaneously. So all of the ways that we can um, show up for multiple senses simultaneously lead to better engagement and better outcome as well. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much yeah. research behind all of that, that it's like, yes, why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. And, and it so takes, like, sorry, one last thing, like it takes mm -hmm. some pressure off of us too, of we are really pushing against this thing of one person has to be everything to another person. We same, same for us, right? I don't have to be the only one showing up for someone who needs support. I have a team supporting me as well. And that alleviates the intensity kind of across the board. Because we are not meant to be islands. Yes, <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and another benefit of our co-treatment model is, you know, there are so many different types of learners. People who really want to, you know, experience something and take it in visually or, you know, really need to get in their body to have it integrate or really want to, you know, be that kind of existential learner. So it's going to reach people in different ways. And we each have a really different way of presenting our information. So we, it's just such a. Uh, we created this analogy once of like shining a flashlight, like one person holding a flashlight beaming out is going to shed light on whatever's directly in front of that person. But imagine the three of us standing back to back in a circle, all holding a flashlight out. It's going to just broaden what we can shed light on just because we each bring a different view, a different perspective um, and a different skill set. So we just have a much better chance of like having a bigger catch all. Um, for, for folks who receive and um, learn in different ways. So, you know, we can present things visually with slides and PowerPoints or musically, or, you know, through group conversations. If you're somebody who likes to process, you know, really inter interpersonally and for our intrapersonal folks, it's like, maybe you want to like flip through this app and really like guide yourself on that self-discovery. So, um, you know, and our, our workbooks give, give a similar kind of, you know, self-guided teaching tool. So anyway, um, that's another perk of having that co-treatment model. And it's not like any one of our, um, specialties is, you know, it's a non-hierarchical, hierarchical <laughs> model. Yes. Not one is not better than the other. 
but they're super symbiotic. Like you're saying, like it really works um, when you, when you combine those different elements and do them in a really intentional kind of sequence. Um, it has the best outcome we've found. Mm. That is so awesome. I love that. I think, yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Thank you. <laughs> now, a couple of you have alluded to this workbook and I know what that is, but could somebody explain this amazing resource? Because I want to make sure that our listeners um, know where to go check this out for themselves. So tell me about these workbooks. Yeah. Kaylee? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. My internet lagged for a moment. I'm here. Um, yes. So our, we have, um, a pair of workbooks. Um, they can work independently. Just great. One is for care partners. Um, this is professional or personal. Um, and the other one is for people living with dementia. They work best. Uh, they're kind of supercharged when you use them together. Um, and they, they both present, information and offer uh, hands-on tools and experientials, um, but they're geared completely differently, right? The care partner one has a lot of like written information, educational stuff, and step-by-step -step instructions for uh, leading your loved one through uh, maybe an art therapy informed experience or a music experience. Um, if you're like, I'm not an artist, I don't know what I'm doing. It it really does walk you through it step by step. And then the uh, the loved one legacy workbook uh, is really just that. It's a legacy workbook. It has a lot of uh, the same information that are, is on the corresponding pages, but just presented a lot more visually or with more um, uh, cues to like get up and actually do something. Um, and it's meant for people at all stages. Um, and we really designed it thoughtfully with that in mind. Um, one of the things that I really love about it is it's kind of a living document. You can go back and revisit some of these prompts and some of these pages as you're going along this journey and as things are changing and you'll get a different uh, process, a different response, a different result uh, on all these different days. And then at the end of it all, um, what's really precious, uh, just speaking from a, a care partner point of view, is I have this tangible legacy item that has, you know, dad's writing about his signature song and why that song is important for him. And it has the self-portrait that he drew. Um, it, you know, it has those really beautiful, precious things for me. Um, and without getting like too existential into it, that I think important about our work is, um, being along this journey brings up a lot of our fears about death, dying, loss, um, being uh, less useful, right? All of that sort of stuff and letting go. Um, and one of the ways that we can begin to address that fear is with legacy work. It, it just uh, feels really comforting to have something that you can hold on to when so much of this process is I can't hold on to anything. I'm letting go of a lot of things. Um, but people can learn more about it. We post about it all the time on our social medias and you can find it um, on our website, creativedementiacollective.com and uh, look at it more there. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to I want to make sure everybody knows about that because that's that's really amazing. And I'm so thankful that you guys um, all have, have come together to create that resource because that's really, really valuable. Um, as we kind of begin to wrap up the conversation, there's something that I want to ask each of you. Um, what do you wish that people at large, the general public, um, knew about dementia? Maybe this could be debunking a myth or a common misconception, but what do you wish that people knew about it? Such a good question. Do you want each of us to answer? Yes, if you wouldn't mind. Um, we talked about this a little bit on our phone call, but um, for me, uh, you'll have that experience of telling somebody what you do and their reaction is like, that's terrible. That's so hard. I can never do that. Um, and I really wish people could open their eyes to the beauty of it. I think um, because of our existential fears about um, our own loss of grip on reality and our own um, eventual progression into end of life. Uh, a lot of people tend to turn away 
um, for people walking that path. Uh, but if you would keep your eyes open, uh, there are just so many beautiful moments um, that that are right in front of you every day. Um, and there's a really profound, I think it's such a profound act of love to stay with somebody um, through that process and to walk with them hand in hand and to um, greet them as they are and not who you remember them to be or who you think they should be. Um, that's a really profound, authentic way to love somebody. Um, and I don't know, like when I think about my dad, I think about um, some of the relationships he has. Uh, they they try to kind of keep him in the box. You're my brother. You're my you're my cousin. You have to be this way. And we always related on this. And so we have to continue to relate. Um, and it's very easy as an adult child to kind of fall into that. Um, and to kind of allow myself to step out of that um, allows me to, as he uh, continues in this disease and in some ways returns to a more childlike self, um, we can kind of be more like buddies and like playmates and, you know, he's a musician. And so we can like, you know, he, of course, grew up in the 60s and 70s, so he would you know, smoke with his friends and listen to records. And obviously we don't do that together, but <laughs> it can be the same vibe of like, tell me about why this record, you know, really, why do you think this is so far out? Like, yeah, Bob Dylan has some really groovy lyrics. Ooh, let's read his lyrics. Like there's something really beautiful in, in meeting that person where they are and not turning away because of your own baggage. Thank you for sharing that and for saying that. That's so beautiful. Thank you. What I wish everyone knew about dementia or people living with dementia is that it's not only about memory loss um, and that there's so much else that changes that, you know, a, a changing brain or a dying brain can affect in a human being. Um, that's so far beyond memory. Memory memory loss in fact is one of the last things that actually is impacted when somebody's living with dementia so you know denial has a time and place in everybody's life it can be a super helpful coping mechanism like denial is appropriate and valid at times however if you have someone in, someone in your life um who you're seeing changes. You're seeing, you know, their skills changing. You're seeing their personality change. You're seeing their ability to use judgment and reason change. Like remaining in your own denial about it possibly being dementia or not um, can be really, really damaging to that person. And it's, um, and I think it, it's so important for people to understand what those signs could be so that everyone can be on the lookout and empower yourself with knowledge and resources and set up your care community sooner rather than later, because your denial is not going to reverse somebody's disease. It's not going to delay its progression, unfortunately. Um, and it's only, it's only going to do harm in the long run. So, um, just being able to recognize those signs, being able to, you know, feel confident in having an open conversation about it. And also to take comfort in the fact that dementia is not only about lost, about loss. There's so many skills and parts of the brain that are retained. And just because somebody has dementia, it doesn't give them a one-way ticket to like, you know, a sterile mental ward, which is a really, really antiquated kind of view of, you know, the unit. Right. Um, but that dementia care really has evolved. And there are people who are putting a lot of research and thoughtful design into programs that really highlight people's retained skills, retained abilities, um, so that they can still be, you know, expressive and thoughtful people participating in life for a, a lot longer than folks give them credit for. So um, that's what I wish people knew. <laughs> I just, as a note too, I was thinking about this, um, when like using person first language, um, yeah. around this, they are living with dementia, but they are still living, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not like we, we wouldn't say you're dying with dementia. We know that it is a terminal illness, Yeah, but yeah. you are, 
there is, you are living and, um, focusing on that retention and the skills and, um, their humanness and their identity, I think is also incredibly empowering. Having that diagnosis is not, um, it doesn't just have to be about the loss and the grief because there is a time and a place and that will come, but they're alive and and they're valuable and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're also allowed to find humor in it and it doesn't make you a bad care partner. (laughs) Yes. That is a great reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think something I'm passionate about people recognizing about dementia and their relationship to a person living with dementia is the wisdom that is available for to be received by you right and just to to qualify this statement not everybody living with dementia is an older adult people can have dementia at many many stages and phases and ages of life that is it is not an old person's thing so i guess that's like a a half thing about what i want people to know about dementia uh, and when we are talking about this idea of the elder right um there's this kind of saying or or idea that society makes a lot of uh olders but not so many elders. And it is our responsibility as the collective of society to help foster the elderhood of people who have things to share. And so if we think about this arc of life, right, or arc of time, um, you can see it in lots of references. People are probably most familiar with the idea of like the hero's journey um, uh, or something similar, you know, Joseph Campbell, that kind of idea. He brought it back to Western thought, but this idea that in our arc of life, we grow up, right? We've kind of become a being in a way, and then we go out and we live life and have experiences. And then we return back. There's this arc of return in which the purpose is to share what we have learned with our people, right? And so when when people are living with dementia and they're perhaps kind of stuck on the out part, right? They're off in their own space or in their own being. We can show up and kind of um, facilitate this elderhood by asking genuinely for their wisdom and being a participant in that returning of knowledge. And I think that's something um that is really powerful intergenerationally or even from peer to peer, but really leaning into what does someone have to offer me in terms of wisdom or wants to express back about what they've learned through their life and then holding the space and facilitating for that. It can be all the way up to leading a therapy group and like facilitating that structurally or person to person having a conversation with grandma and really sitting and and listening to what they have to say. So that's something that I wish more people would see when they think about dementia is the retained, like Aaron talks about this retained abilities and also this gathered wisdom that needs a place to go. Really, that's what's happening um, towards end of life as we're trying to give back whatever we've learned on our own personal arc. So I really encourage people to to lean into that a little bit more. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that is, that is the beauty of, of legacy work as like a mm-hmm. big umbrella term and also the workbooks that you guys have created, um, which I think is is so valuable. I know personally for myself in my personal life and in my professional life, um, I think everyone needs to, to spend some time hanging out with older adults, like just spend some time, sit at their feet, listen to what they have to say, make music with them, make art with them, just be with them and learn from their lived experiences because there is so much value in that, that as a society, we just completely gloss over and, or don't want any you know, we don't want to have anything to do with that. And yes. Um, and working. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. No, <laughs> I was just going to say work that, that idea of, of capturing that wisdom and, and um, learning from different generations and experiences is something that actually drew me to music therapy work in the first place was, was seeing music therapy work in elder care and um, specifically memory care and dementia. And so that is something that I personally am really passionate about. Um, and I know I've, I've um, grown a lot from 
trying to keep that in the, the forefront of my work and my own life. Yeah. I think oh, there's so much value too. in like, um, people who are not neurotypical and mm-hmm. might have a different lens, a different way of expressing a different way of seeing things, um, that, you know, there's this assumption of like, what am I going to learn from them? They don't know anything. They're like, they can hardly, they can hardly dress themselves. What, you know, she's got food on her shirt and she doesn't even realize it. What can I possibly learn? Um, but that is so the opposite of, of, of what's actually really true is the, those non-neurotypicals, those people that, uh, have a different paradigm through which they're seeing the world. Um, in some ways, I put much more weight into their perspective, uh, their thoughts and feelings about uh, about life and about the big questions that I think um, we need to get over our own assumptions about that and, and give it a chance. I could not agree more. <laughs> have, Alyssa, have you ever heard of the old people are cool manifesto or the oath? No, I don't think so. Please share. Oh my share. gosh. Okay. So it... it uh, Link Senior uh, came up with this campaign. I think they partnered with the Alzheimer's Association or, or uh, proceeds of their you know shop go to the Alzheimer's Association. But um, it is called the Old People Are Cool Manifesto, and it really confronts the harmful ageism um, that's so present in our society. And um, it really supports and encourages like that intergenerational collaboration to shift how communities talk about uh, aging, elder care, you know, dementia care, um, you know, non-neurotypical communities and things like that. So I think it's super cool. Um, and you can like publicly declare your support for this manifesto. Um, uh, so so check that out. It's called All Old People Are Cool. I'm all about it. I've been, (laughs) I've been told before that I, I had, this is totally off topic. A couple months ago, I met somebody for the first time and they told me that I talked like an old soul. Like I, I, the way that I was spoke was like, I had seen some things and I was like, yeah, I hang out with people who have seen some things. They have lived some life and I highly recommend it. <laughs> you know, yes. like, even my catchphrases and like colloquialisms, you know, but um, yeah, not to get off too off topic, but I think there's so <laughs> yeah. much perspective and wisdom and, and humor to be found and just truly enjoy community in such a broader sense. Um, yeah. Yes. I love yes. that. And old people are cool. They are so cool. (laughs) So cool. And if there's any younger people listening to your podcast, something that might be uh, fun to think about. I don't know if fun's the right word. It's fun to me, but mm, uh, (laughs) powerful maybe um, is this idea that, you know, if, if you're a young person and justice minded or change minded, right, there's this archetypal idea of the youth and the elders coming together to spark radical change because the youth have this energy. They have the spirit of life so fresh and enlivened within them that they have the, the, the means to embark on action. Right. And when that is paired with the deep wisdom of elders and people who have wisdom that goes out of time, right. Not just this particular moment, but many, many moments from the past. And especially towards real end of life, you, you tap into stuff even outside of your own lifetime arc. Um, when those two things come together, that kind of deep wisdom of humanity, plus this powerful spirit for the moment, uh, really incredible things can happen. So, um, any, any time you can show up and connect with older folks in your community, um, you, you might be surprised what it offers you, you know? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you guys so much for bringing all of your wisdom too to this conversation and all of your skill sets and your passion and your heart for this work that you're doing. I think it's um, such a valuable contribution to the future of dementia care, elder care, um, self-care, right? We talked about a lot of things, but um, I love all of the elements that you guys are pulling from and the work that you're doing is just so profound. So I 
um, I'm really encouraged that you, there are folks like you doing this. And I hope to see more of this attitude take hold as we go into the future. So I want to encourage you guys that your, your work matters immensely. And I feel so inspired after getting to hang out with you guys for the last hour or so. Um, so I'm really grateful that you all made the time to, to share, um, about each of you and share vulnerably with our, our audience and community. So Thank you all very much. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. What a fun conversation. Truly. Yeah. Our <laughs> Thank pleasure. You for Thank you for holding yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope um, we broke records for how many times the word dementia was used in a single conversation. So <laughs> I, our I'm new gonna, benchmark. <laughs> I'll tally it up and let you know. <laughs>